Hello, welcome to this BMJ podcast about well-being, sponsored by Medical Protection. I'm Abby Rimmer, careers editor at the BMJ, with an interest in doctors' well-being. And I'm Kat Chatfield, a trained GP with an interest in quality improvement and patient safety. Abby and I co-lead the BMJ's campaign on well-being, which is especially important for healthcare professionals during this COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. And today we're going to be talking about the importance of providing time and space for doctors to rest at work. Now, Abby, this is something we've been talking about for a long time, uh, pre-COVID. This is not a new a new issue. Um, I certainly remember when I was a junior doctor, I had the enormous privilege of, of having a room at the hospital um, and we had a doctor's mess where we could go and kind of refresh, especially on a long night shift. Um, but I think things have substantially changed for a lot of a lot of clinicians working on the front lines um, between that uh, um, number of years ago that I wish shot specify <laughs> and and now, uh, you know, what's your sort of thoughts on the situation as it is? Yeah, I think as you say, Kat. I mean, we started talking about the importance of rest spaces pre-pandemic as part of our work on doctors' well-being, and I think, in a way. Uh, the pandemic has kind of highlighted the importance of these things it's a shame that it's taken a pandemic to do that but we have seen some trusts introducing spaces that they didn't have before or things like hot food at night which I think um are actually all things that our guest when we talked to him had called for prior to the pandemic as well my worry is that those things will get lost again when we get back to in inverted commas normal Um, but hopefully that won't be the case. Yeah, hi, good afternoon, uh, Abby and Kat. Uh, My name's Dan Smith. I'm a respiratory doctor by trade, ST7 trainee in Nottingham University Hospitals. Uh, But for the last year, I've had the very posh-sounding job title of a National Medical Director's Clinical Fellow uh, working for NHS England in the Midlands. Fantastic. And now, Dan, you've led on something called the Midlands Charter. Um, I have no idea what that is. Could you please tell me more about it? The Midlands Charter, it's a piece of work that I'm very proud of. It's a piece of work that was developed with a collaboration between Health Education England and NHS England and Improvements in the Midlands. And it's very much a Midlands piece of work, i.e. we have Midlands experts who help to collaborate on the piece of work. The examples contained within it are Midlands examples uh, and the solution to issues that we as trainees have raised within the Midlands. And the Charter contains 14 quality standards for training and education. And if you read through those 14 quality standards, none of it seems particularly pie in the sky or innovative. It is things that are influenced by documents such as the BMA Facilities and Fatigue Charter, the GMC Caring for Doctors, Caring for Patients document, uh, and the kind of the Royal College's um, documentation on restarting training. So they're quite simple interventions. But if you do all 14 of them, the incremental change that you will have on your training population is ginormous. I think with our wellbeing hats on, I know that the Charter covers not just environments that you work in, but also other aspects of training. But I think kind of when we think in terms of wellbeing, we're kind of thinking in terms of the environment maybe a bit more specifically. And I wondered if, you know, we've touched on food and spaces, but I wondered if you could give us an idea of what kind of things the Charter calls for in in the respect of the environments trainees are working in. Yeah, I'll just answer that one slightly broader, if you don't mind, Abby, is that 
well, your well-being, in my opinion, and probably the opinion of members of our group, is an accumulation of lots of different factors. So how difficult or timely, how intensive your work is, as well as the environment that you're working in, as well as the support that you're being offered. So the charter we split up into three different sections. It's it's your work in life, the environment you work in, and the support you're given is the three things that impacts on your quality of life at work. And um, our assumption, we hope, hope that we're right, is that those three things together, um, if done correctly, will improve everyone's well-being. In terms of your specific question about the environment that people are working in, if you read through the elements of the Midlands Charter, we have six different quality standards, as we call them, for the working environment. And they, you'll see that they very much don't copy the, the BMA facility and facility charters because, as I said, these are Midlands-based quality standards, but they're very similar. So, for example, commit to providing 24 access to food, providing high quality rest, sleep and changing facilities. Uh, and I say these were quality standards which came about as part of COVID because although changing facilities have always been an issue, especially in my experience in, in acute hospitals, actually with COVID, all of us wanting to change into scrubs, maybe having a shower before we come home at work to protect our loved ones, these have become even larger issues. Uh, and so that's why it was so vital to have training input into the actual quality standards because some of them were extremely timely when we created them. I think also I just wanted to reflect that, you know, we talk about very specifically this is designed by trainees and with trainees in the Midlands for trainees and training providers. But a lot of these things that you are identifying apply equally to, you know, clinicians at any stage of their career, really. You know, obviously the environment factors are the same. We all need to eat, we all need to sleep, we all need to rest. Um, But actually, you know, we've touched on this in other podcasts, you know, your experience of work, your rotoring, the amount of autonomy you have over your pattern and how that fits around your other priorities priorities in your life. That's obviously critical for staff to remain um, well and healthy at work. And then also, you know, what support do you have, you know, whether that's your team or formal supervision or, you know, psychological support, if, if that's what you need. So I think, you know these factors go go quite far beyond just the needs of trainees and I'd be interested to kind of for us to think about how that could be extended um yeah Yeah, I agree because and I'm very happy to talk about the weaknesses of the piece of work we've done because it's a it's a live document we see and we're continually trying to innovate to move it on to the next step and the the largest weakness that the glaring obvious um deficiency of it is it's focused on training junior doctors uh, and that's because the initial piece of work done by our local Senate was based on what do trainee doctors, what's the impact on of COVID on trainee doctors. Um, but that means that even specialty doctors or consultants, in theory, are, are missing out on the benefits of the charter. We hope indirectly, because it's asking for rest spaces, 24-hour food provision stuff, that they'll, they'll be directly um, provided for. But the other thing that we're very aware of is that it's a, a single specialty or, or a single workforce document. And, and so we have worked with our local nursing directors in NHS England and Midlands to, to try and either extend this charter or create a different one for the nursing. Because um, rest spaces should be for all, food should be for all, uh, educational resources should be for all. I think at the times that we all do all these things in, in silos, should be over because we all work as teams so we should be able to rest uh, be educated as teams as well absolutely dan and that chimes with what we heard from another group looking at the impacts of pandemic about the provision of uh, spaces and resources for psychological support and how actually they were really underutilized by different staff groups especially you know people like cleaners and hcas even though they the provision was supposed to be across the board so i think that's a really important point for for the workforce Definitely. 
I think it's the hardest challenge is not just in the middle of charter work, but a lot of our well-being work is that you can be the best organisation in the country in terms of offering resources. You can offer psychological services, webinars, free tea and coffee, but there are an awful large percentage of our workforce does not have the, the autonomy mm. to choose to leave their workplace to go and access them. Mm. Uh, junior doctors are a really good point in case, uh, case in point until they get to a relatively high level of seniority. So those mm. first few years... Um, especially for our rotational doctors and, and yourself, Kat, as a GP trainee, mm-hmm. you would have kind of experienced maybe a new department every four months when you were a GP mm-hmm. training. Yeah. And you, you're very timetabled. Um, mm-hmm. And that's helpful for doctors. It means they don't know where they need to go. But if they want to go and access a Swartz round for an hour on a Tuesday afternoon, mm-hmm. they haven't got the autonomy to go and to make that decision. So mm-hmm. previously, when I used to go to Swartz rounds in a previous trust and access wellbeing resources, you'd take the same 20 people in that room that you'd see every single week. Mm-hmm. So... The way that we make resources accessible to cleaners, to nurses, to doctors, to physios, to a manager, to a chief executive has to be different for each one of those people. Uh, And I think it's a really difficult challenge. I definitely don't have all the answers for it. Well, then you get into culture and permission giving, which is which yeah. is a whole a whole big thorny issue. Sorry, Abby, I've monopolised. Carry on. No, not at all. I was just going to say on that point, Dan, I wonder if just the... The existence of the charter, you know, I know it's probably not printed on bits of paper, but the fact that it is on a bit of paper, does that give junior doctors at least a bit more autonomy in terms of asking for those things, do you think? So that's one thing we've really tried to encourage is is to, we've approached the charter in kind of a top and a bottom approach, and I probably need a better way of describing it than that. But the top approach is that we've emailed medical directors and directors of medical education, had several meetings with with them, and encouraged the clinical leaders in organisations to sign up to the charter because they're the people who can make the change. But we've also made sure that we've contacted and communicated with junior doctors. So we have a, a collaborative, we call it the Midlands Charter Collaborative, of around 70 trainees across the Midlands. Um, we meet them every one or two months. We just a very informal teams meeting, either at lunchtime or in early evening. And we call them our well-being ambassadors or champions. And the reason we do that is just to authenticate them, to give them that permission and that autonomy to say, I've got this document, I'm going to go and talk to my medical director with support of the regional team, uh, and I'm going to try and make these changes. And I won't name the organisation, but one of our organisations was not signed up to the charter until four of their trainees in their local hospital came to our meetings saw how useful the document was, saw it was in the middle of the second wave of the pandemic and said, there's a regional standard for what we should be doing for our trainees. Why are we not as a large teaching hospital doing these things? And with their support of their chief registrar, I emailed the medical director and within a week, they were our newest sign up to the the Midlands Charter. So we definitely um, look to support, but also say authenticate the trainees work. Uh, And we've We've seen fantastic outputs from the trainees' work. So we had, um, as part of our work, we run a series of webinars. We ran a webinar in, in late June, early July, um, and that webinar was completely produced, chaired, and all the talks selected by trainees. We had 16 different groups of trainees from our 22 organisations submit work that they wanted to present. Uh, we, we unfortunately only had to have time for six or seven of them to present, but each of those junior doctors presented work, which was... Uh, stimulated or provoked by the Midlands Charter that they could then implement in their local trusts, ranging from providing an on-call box with food and shampoo and soap and things to a whole series of digital wellbeing uh, resources for a critical care department in one of our busy teaching hospitals. So, yeah, so the junior... 
Junior Docs is both leading the Midland Charts implementation group, but leading the implementation in local organisations. That's what we've tried to encourage. Even when the, the trustee initially signed up to the charter, we asked them to nominate at least four champions who were junior doctors in their organisations because we were just trying to provoke that conversation between very high senior level doctors uh, and junior doctors. And I, I, as a junior doctor who's rotated around six, seven trusts in my time, it's very difficult to get those conversations started because you're a transitional workforce and you just don't have that continuity to feel comfortable to email the medical director or the director of medical education on your own back. So I hope in a few organisations we've been able to just make that connection on behalf of people. And we'll be back in just a moment after a message from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we know how challenging recent times have been for all medical practitioners. And as they work tirelessly to look after others, we wanted to help our members focus on their own physical, mental and emotional well-being. So we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a confidential one-to-one counselling service, offering support for issues such as stress, burnout, anxiety and conflict. Members can also access a wellness app to help monitor, measure and promote balanced healthy living, as well as a host of handy podcasts and webinars. Our wellbeing programme is just one of many reasons for doctors to choose medical protection. To find out more about membership, which also includes comprehensive protection, advice and risk prevention support, visit medicalprotection.org. My next question, I think you've started to answer it already, but I don't know if you want to go further. I, I was going to ask, you know, what, what practical differences have you have the recommendations and the charter made um, for, for doctors working across your region, would you say? I think this is our biggest challenge um, as part of the Midland Charter team. We've got 22 organisations signed up for it, ranging from signing up in November 2020 until the last organisation signed up a month or two ago. So we've got lots of people who are at different stages of that kind of change cycle. As you said, also, a lot of those organisations were at different stages already in terms of their wellbeing provision. Uh, and some of the trusts that are signed up are mental health organisations or community trusts or acute providers. So actually completely different baseline um we made a decision as part uh, as part of the the task and finish group or the program group that we wouldn't kind of be wanting to do an assurance process and go around and kind of inspect or to constantly email medical directors and dmes to say uh, how are you getting on but we'd want to share positive experiences across the the region and so the initial impact we know is that five and a half thousand trainees are working in an organisation that signed up to the Charter. We know that, as I say, we've had these fantastic examples from 16 of our 22 organisations for work that's been done, uh, either provoked or, or encouraged by the Charter. But in terms of quantifiable outcomes, uh, definitely would, would, kind of, would acknowledge that we haven't really got them as yet. Uh, and so what we're doing at the moment is we're working with Health Education England, their quality team, to determine if there's any changes in the GMC survey results, to determine if before and after the charter, if we can notice any differences between trusts that are signed up or not signed up to the charter. With a complete acknowledgement that it's not really very binary and we can never say that our charter has completely made all those differences because obviously the last year has had so many different um, impacts on that. The other thing that we've asked and we've, we're starting to see these results come through now is that each of the trusts do a self-assessment against the 14 quality standards in the charter to say where are they six months ago and where are they now and I say we're trying this is not assurance with a small a we're not trying to 
give people another level of inspection. But we're a year down the line almost now from we created this document, so we do, we do need to see what improvements people are making. The last point is is that because of our regular junior doctor collaborative meetings, we're aware of the organisations that are not making as quick a change as, as we would hope, or, or maybe not any change, because we've got 70 junior doctors on the ground telling us on a day-to-day basis that their trust might say they've got a... 24-hour food, but actually that 24-hour food is a vending machine and there's nothing ever in it. So so we are getting kind of smaller, softer piece of intelligence coming through at all. But again, I've already talked about the weaknesses of our piece of work. One weakness definitely was the, the lack of a multidisciplinary approach initially. But another weakness is, is getting quantifiable data to what's, what this, um, what, what, what's um, actually made an impact in change. Now, Dan, forgive what now might sound like a quite a stupid question um but I, i'm aware that we've we've all said the word charter quite a lot and um i'm sure some people will have heard of the bma's fatigue and facilities charter and you mentioned it at the beginning and i just wondered if you were a junior doctor and you thought oh well my trust has signed up to that charter and i haven't seen much difference what's the point for me trying to make something like they've done in the midlands i can't see what impact that would make i mean kind of what would your response be to that I, if I was that junior doctor, I was working with those junior doctors, I would completely empathise with that. And and this is what I started off saying is there are lots of documents out there um, which try and do a similar thing. So, and I say some of those documents maybe uh, or likely fit certain junior doctors' experiences better than our Midlands Charter. Our Midlands Charter is a Midlands document initially with Midlands um, issues and Midlands uh, examples but not saying that it couldn't be replicated into different areas of the country. Uh, and in fact, we've had lots of people ask for copies of it to, to, to look at replicating in different parts of the country. Um, but I say a junior doctor is this odd rotational transitional workforce. And so by the time they get their feet wet and comfortable within a new organisation, often that's six weeks to three months down the line, and then they've only got a certain period of, of time before they can make any changes, and then that whoosh, they're off to the next trust. So I would completely empathise with doctors. The the difficulty of all these things is never the quality of the document that's tried to be implemented. I say the BMA facility and chart document is fantastic, but it's a few years old now, and there was even funding attached to it, wasn't there? And still, we haven't seen and and, and trust signed up to say they would do it, but still, we haven't seen all organisations completely meet all those standards. So that's why I go back to if it's not the document that's the issue, it's it's how it's implemented, uh, and that's why I don't personally believe that the the money that was attached to the BMA facility and fatigue charter and the document itself properly included junior doctors in the implementation of those improvements. And I'm not saying that we've got it completely right with the Midlands Charter. In certain organisations, we've got a larger trainee voice than others. But it's junior doctors constantly looking at what can be improved, working and connecting with their senior clinical leaders. Uh, I think that's the answer. Uh, and it's, it's, it's authenticating junior doctors who may only be in an organisation for six or 12 months to say your voice is vital, your lived experience is vital, you're the only one who sees what you see at four o'clock in the morning. We need you to communicate with your MD, your chief executive, your director of medical education, because it's only you who knows what experiences you're having. But um, I would, again, I say, I would empathise with that junior doctor because that, that's my experience in previous organisations as well. Sometimes you just, you, you're just so busy uh, and the bandwidth to make improvements is so, is so narrow um, and again, it goes back to something we talked about earlier, that we need to not just make the well-being um, 
opportunities and uh, resources that are accessible, but we need to make kind of the access to quality improvement, the access to time to think about these things accessible as well to junior doctors. Great. I was just smiling because you said quality improvement, yeah. which is like one of Kat's magic words. Absolutely. I was really oh, happy, well, no, I'm really it's, happy it's, that you said that, Dan. That was excellent. Thanks. Well, we, thanks could, we could do a whole series of webinars on, on Q&I. That's, Q&I is, is, is my thing as well. But, but the interesting thing is, is how you can connect kind of QI and wellbeing together. So Devika Patel, who is the, the West Midlands trainee chair, uh, she's um, now a psychiatry registrar. She was one of our core members of our charter team from the West Midlands. She used quality improvement methodology to do her wellbeing work. So she realised that on a, in a mental health organisation on the wards, especially during COVID, that it was a very lonely place to be. She, she had the perspective of a junior doctor, but she also recognised that um, occupational therapists, physios, mental health nurses all found the ward environment at that time because of PPE, because they were trying to reduce exposure to each other, a really lonely environment. So she used quality improvement methodology, including kind of statistical process control charts as a measure of demonstrating, but then sharing the results of her well-being exercise. So I think it's fantastic when those kind of two areas of my life overlap and we see some amazing work within the region. Absolutely. We've actually got a podcast coming up about quality improvement and well-being. So <laughs> I'll, oh, wow. I'll give that one a plug, a plug. You know, it sounds like the catalyst for this work has been the pandemic. And obviously there are issues that were brought about the pandemic that didn't exist before. But I imagine some of the things you're looking at tackling did exist pre-pandemic. So why why was your work kind of launched by the pandemic? Was that just a coincidence? And if it was, if it was due to the pandemic, why wasn't it happening before? So, no, it, it was definitely the stimulus for the piece of work was the pandemic, because they say the very origin of it was our local Senate doing a, an audit, for want of a better word, a, a, um, a heat map about what the impact of, on the COVID on training was. But when, when that was published and shared, you could tell that a lot of the impacts of COVID, although it had been accentuated by recent time, access to rest spaces are a great example, they weren't new. Um, most definitely weren't new. Some of them, um, of the, the issues that we brought about as part of the audit as, and about a part of the task and finish group that all of our trainees were involved with, were relatively new due to COVID. So the fact that all of our teaching at one point was virtual, uh, that was, we've all got used to doing webinars in the last year, but a couple of years ago, they were relatively unique to do a webinar. You'd, 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 you would demand to go to a conference because that's the only time that you can have a beer with your colleagues after. <laughs> um, so, so some of those things were, again, not completely unique, but definitely were highlighted by COVID. Um, the challenges that COVID have, have, um, have faced for this are the fact that we can't all get together and kind of share our successes, but encourage people in person. And so we've purposely, as part of our, our team meetings, as part of sharing our work with each other in terms of trainees, have made that relatively informal. Uh, we make sure that we all get to know each other quite well. In the beginning of all our meetings, we have five or 10 minutes of catching up. We have regular touch points with the core team for the charter, who are mainly NHS England work uh, colleagues. Um, just because we're still trying to build a team, even if representatives on our call are in Nottingham, Boston, Coventry and Warwick, Birmingham and Herefordshire. Um, so I don't think we could have done a piece of collaborative work like this without the pandemic, because of the fact that the virtual working has made it all, all much more easy. However, 
why has this not been done before the pandemic? As I go back to the fact that there's lots of different organisations have tried their, their hardest to do something like this. They've done, the, say, the BMA Facility and Fatigue Charter, the GMC document that came for Dots Came for Patients. It's a fantastic document with loads of uh, examples of good practice and recommendations. But there has been something quite unique over this last year when you were in the NHS about the speed of change has, has, has really picked up about, uh, during the pandemic. And also... Hopefully that means that some of these new innovations have embedded themselves that little bit quicker as well. Time will tell. It, um, I might be sat listening to this podcast in a year's time, disappointed that the charter has completely disappeared from existence and no one can remember it. Can remember it. But um, I'm, I'm hoping that we've, because we put it in place into such a difficult time um, and it proved, touch wood, successful, that um, as we get used to this kind of new normal, we'll we'll be able to just kind of keep progressing and moving it forward. I think from your description, I think one of the real strengths of this piece of work is the fact that it is so specific to the region and it came out from, you know, genuine real lived experiences um, of of trainees in, in the region and was done in partnership with local providers and we know you know the good qi mindset that doing something you know on a smaller scale i say small i know the midlands isn't small but you know relatively smaller scale um and then testing it and iterating it and before you kind of scale and spread it more widely is really critical um but i think what what do you think are the key things that you've learned that you would share with other regions and areas who want to take on um their own work in this area so, so firstly, it's that the key word is collaboration um, and the trainee voice as part of that has got to be vital because they have to be your main stakeholder. To do this again, I would make sure that we did something which was cost disciplinary. So that was including physios, OTs, pharmacists, cleaners, etc. Because uh, all of us have our own educational needs and all of us have, as I said earlier, different well-being and, and environmental needs. Uh, it might be that when you start that, that your charter gets a bit cumbersome and 14 quality standards just don't get enough. So it might be that you need to develop certain aspects that are specialty or discipline specific, but I, I would want to do it collaborating across the whole of the workforce. But that collaboration, as we said earlier, virtually is a lot easier than it ever was before. Um, so I would, I don't think there's very many barriers to that anymore, other than making sure that trainees' time is protected to attend these sessions. And I was very lucky that my trust at the time when I started this piece of work, Sherwood Voice Hospitals, was very supportive of protecting my time. The other thing I'd say is work alongside those key stakeholders in the in your area. So most definitely that includes Health Education England, NHS England, uh, and we're really thankful for the support that the GMC have given us. And if you're going to do any of this piece of work, don't think of it as a project. You have to do a piece of work that you think is going to be from the minute go sustainable and try and figure out it, what are the barriers for it to becoming sustainable. So, for example, NHS England, it's part of our regular conversation about well-being and even equality and diversity. When we're having those conversations about our workforce, the charter is one of the key vehicles for, for enforcing that work. Health Education England, it's part of their core work when their quality team does discussions with providers. They mention the charter. So you're having issues with study leave. Have you looked at the charter? And the GMC, um, uh, Ian Whittle, who's our local GMC representation, um, has, has told me that when the GMC have conversations with their uh, with organisations, they encourage organisational sign up and delivery, and they mention it in their workshops and training events with doctors as well. So, again, these shouldn't be projects because these are should be lasting changes, or that's what we um, we wanted to be. My 
kind of my last uh, point of view is probably about, as we talked about earlier with quality improvement, is about change management, is how are you going to implement these things? And there is very, very little benefit of just emailing everybody and say, from tomorrow, this policy has to be enacted. You have to think about how organizations are going to enact these things and how your messaging has to be different for different members of the organization. So the email to medical directors, um, and if an email is your right choice of communication, has to be very different to your email to foundation doctors or your email to to occupational therapists, for example, because we all have different needs and wishes and, and training goals. And the carrot, the the why are you doing this, is going to be very different to MDs and to junior doctors. Junior doctors, some of it has got to be personal, i.e. your life will be improved if you, if you help to implement X, Y, and Z. And for medical directors, it's going to be maybe more uh, reputation, sickness levels, operational issues, and things like that. So we've learned a lot as a team about kind of making sure our communication is correct uh, or timely or... Um, uh, aimed correctly at the right members, but also just making sure that those key stakeholders, HCE and HSE and GMC, are involved in all those decisions because their insights, because they have such different perspectives, have been really vital. And we're back in a moment after this offer for our listeners. As a healthcare professional, keeping up with the latest evidence based medicine is more important now than ever before with the COVID 19 pandemic. That's why BMJ Best Practice is free to all NHS staff in England, Scotland and Wales. With fast access to the latest clinical guidance anywhere, anytime, BMJ Best Practice will enable you to treat patients with confidence. As well as COVID-19 treatments, you can access over a thousand topics across 32 clinical specialities with step-by-step guidance on diagnosis, prognosis, treatment and prevention, all structured around the patient consultation. To create your free account, visit bmj.com slash ukaccess. Funded by Health Education England, NHS Education for Scotland and NHS Wales. No, we haven't talked very explicitly about the kind of levers that you have in the system as well around actually, you know, when when you collaborate with NHS England and HEE or the GMC, you know, there is a risk that providers lose trainees um, if they don't provide a, a suitably um, good training environment for them. Uh, and I, I just wonder, you know, we've talked about how we thought the f- financial aspect of the BMA fatigue and facilities charter didn't necessarily kind of do the job as a systems lever. But how influential do you think that might be um, in terms of implementing this piece of work? Just to go really to the bone. <laughs> I'm probably not the right person to ask. I think we would want to ask one of our postgraduate deans, either Jonathan or Russell from HCE. Um, as I said, we made a conscious choice very early on that we, we weren't going to use them in the charter as an extra level of assurance because we wanted. We were asking people to sign up during the second wave of COVID, so so we had to encourage people in in a different way, which was we want to encourage you to make changes we will showcase your changes through webinars through uh, posting up on websites we'll work with your trainees to do these things so we, we did all of it with a really as much as we could do a positive mindset to say we know you want to do these things so, but there must have been a barrier to stopping you from doing it because they're all very sensible things and as we've talked about earlier they've all been things that have been pointed out to organizations before Going forward, we are doing that a bit more of a formal process at the moment where we're kind of contacting all our providers just to say, look, it's been six months, eight months now since you signed up. What have you done? In terms of levers for change, 
I say I probably would have to bow to the expertise of uh, of my colleagues in health education in England because through the whole ethos of this piece of work, I, I wouldn't want um, those really drastic levers of taking trainees off, off to be utilised unless obviously it's really, really necessary. Um, what we're hoping is the Midlands Charter is, again, using kind of QI methodologies, an incremental improvement, maybe PDSA cycle by PDSA cycle. Um, so, yeah, I would I would hope that the Midlands Charter is only allowing people to go forward. If there was any signs of regression, obviously, then I would hope that our colleagues in Health Education England would would, um, would, would enact that. So, yeah. Thanks. Probably quite a political Thanks. answer there because it's not my role to. No, no, that's a, no, very people. diplomatic answer, and I think you know we do we do know, don't we, that with change management, you know, that creating that kind of shared vision and, and mutual benefit is a very effective way of generating change, mm. and the carrot is probably a lot more effective than than the stick. So, I just wanted yeah, to kind I, of uh, raise that point. Yeah, and um, I, I reflect in terms of um, quality improvement on kind of persuasion techniques and. They're not, I don't know, persuasion is probably the wrong word, but I do kind of, this is not going to be very good for a podcast, but um, one of the things that we do is we constantly update how many people have signed up to the charter. And we use metrics like the 5,000 doctors because um, there's a very good study that shows that if you can see what your peers are doing, then you as a peer will say, okay, then if if 70% of my peers are doing it, why are we not on board? Uh, And so we... Again, hopefully in a positive way, we've tried to use that little bit of peer pressure to say, um, in your area of the north of the East Midlands, everybody else has signed up. You're the only acute organisation that hasn't. We, on our NHS Futures website that we use for collaboration, all of the trusts that have signed up, we have their logos on there because we're trying to encourage other organisations to sign up. And uh, I know personally that we've had diets and medication MDs look at that and go, okay, then the seven trusts surrounding us, which our trainees rotate around, are all signed up. On our Futures website, we have a nice little kind of countdown clock that shows you what percentage of trainees in each of the East and the West Midlands are signed up. So, um, I don't know. The word lever feels like it's almost kind of quite cynical, but but we, we have done those kind of things uh, in the back of our minds to uh, try and encourage tra- uh, organisations. I, I think probably the approved terminology is behavioural change nudges, if you wish to be a little bit more soft nudges. about it. Yeah, absolutely. But no, you're absolutely right. I mean, Dan... Be, you know understanding human behaviors and hum- social behaviors is is really important for for change management and i think you know applying that judiciously and carefully t- and thoughtfully to to your work is is only going to benefit benefit it and by extension benefit trainees across across the midlands say i've listened to this podcast i'm a junior doctor and i think oh i want to set up the southwest charter what's my first step now what do i do so one of the great things that's happened during COVID as well is that uh, Health Education England have set up regional and national training engagement forums in each of the um, in each of the Health Education England areas. I know because I'm part of the East Midlands one and I go to the national meetings. So I would firstly maybe look at getting contact with your local trainee leads. Uh, failing that, if that's if you're not getting anywhere with that, I would potentially contact your local either your, your trust director of medical education or your local um, postgraduate dean. But we in the Midlands would love to hear from you. We've got a fantastic NHS Futures website, which uh, which anyone is free to come and access. That's got all of the details of our Midlands Charter on it. It's got, I say, five podcasts that we've delivered. It's got lots of blogs and case studies for the different interventions that's happened across the Midlands, most of them led by trainees. Um, so 
the document that we've created, you're very, very welcome to download that uh, and to think about into, um, changing it to your area. The reason why I started, what would I do if I was in a different area by looking towards either HEE or NHSE is going back to that keyword of collaboration. Um, I recognize that as a sole junior doctor trying to make changes in an organization, it's really challenging. So I, my first point of call would look to collaborate with your kind of regional teams uh, to see if there's any of the changes that you would want to make as a region are sustainable and shareable across your whole region. I say we've had a few of the different regions uh, through the training engagement form at Health Education England uh, borrow our charter and uh, look at it and see if there's different um, aspects of it that they could utilise. But I say don't feel like you need to reinvent the wheel. I don't, I don't think always it's a new document that needs to be uh, encouraged. It might be that you would decide as a local region that you're just going to take the BMA facilities for teacher and make sure that there's a new initiative to com completely fulfil those. Um, so they're the kind of things I would recommend. So get some pals, look to collaborate locally, get a bunch of junior doctors. If you can't get regional interest, do it within one organisation and then start to uh, kind of collaborate and, and share those resources across across the region. But anything we can do in the Midlands, or say all of our resources are completely open to anybody who'd like to utilise them. And if you want to uh, have a chat with us personally in terms of the, the core team, uh, please just let us know. We're, we're more than happy to kind of share our experiences uh, and what we've learned throughout the journey. Brilliant. Thanks. Thank you. Well, I thought that was a really interesting discussion, Kat. I mean, they've obviously done a huge amount of work in the Midlands to get to where they are in terms of the, the charter, but also the additional work that they've done around it. And I think there's probably lots that other areas can take away from it. Um, I know I started off thinking that it was going to be about spaces and and um, hot food and those more practical things, but it sounds like it, it covers a, a much broader range than that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really liked his reflections on you know how well-being has suddenly become this like common language that everyone can agree is something that's really really important and that we have to focus on and I think it's interesting how that's not just happened in in kind of hospitals and in clinical practice but it's become, happened across you know the whole workforce in general you know we're all suddenly much more aware of how each other's lives impact on our work you know we're seeing cats and children and things via zoom if if you're working in that environment or you know we're much aware of people's um sort of health needs and how that might impact on their ability to do their job you know we're much more aware of you know people's requirements for their shift pattern because of commitments at home or caring commitments and so i think really that's come out for me as a really strong positive this this idea that we can all invest in the fact that well-being needs to be at the centre of our workforce um, for our trainees and for our um, other colleagues. Um, that was very vague and rambling, but I think you kind of see what I'm getting at. I was going to say, I think that's a really nice place to finish because that's all we have time for. So I'll say thanks ever so much to our guest, Dan Smith, for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Abby. That's kind of you to say that. Um, you can check us out on social media. We're at BMJ underscore latest on Twitter, or you can join the BMJ Wellbeing Group on Facebook. As always, we'd really like to hear your ideas for what we might cover in future episodes. So until next time, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye.